Let's give attention to Matthew chapter 8, so please make sure your Bibles are turned there. Growing up, I was uh, around a lot of men who uh, worked out. Um, My father was in the military, and being on this base, uh, he served in the Air Force, and they had a, uh, lived in a base that had a gym where a lot of people worked out. I saw some guys lifting a lot of weight, getting big, strong. Lots of guys getting themselves that way, pumping iron. I never really got it when I was growing up. I mean, I just asked myself, why do these guys keep doing this? Working out, getting themselves bigger. What's it for? What are they going to use all that power for? What's, what's the power for? Aren't you just flying airplanes and stuff like that? You know, why do you need to be so big? Well, in a sense, our study over the next many, many weeks, even months, over chapters 8 through 12 here in Matthew is all about answering that question. What's the power that Jesus has all about? What's that all about? Why so strong? Why so strong? Why so big? Why so great? What's all this power, this displaying power all about? What's it all for? We've been at the Sermon on the Mount for so long. Maybe you forgot that there is a direction that Matthew, the gospel writer, is going at. Maybe you forgot what it is that he's doing. The Holy Spirit is using Matthew to give us this message about Jesus Christ. Now, you can see that from the very important text that really, I believe, kind of sets the direction for chapters 5 through 12. So look at it one more time at chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And in that one verse, and in that one statement, is the the hub of the direction of where Matthew's going. We're going to try to see if we can give some explanation. And you get the two things that Jesus came to do on this earth. He came to preach and teach, right? He came to preach, and he came to heal. To preach and to heal. He came with messages and miracles. And this really summarizes the activity of Christ. You say, well, he discipled people, and he did all that other stuff too. Yes, he did. But when you talk about the public ministry of our Lord. Messages, miracles. Now the Sermon on the Mount, of course, was a sample of that very message. I say a sample because it was a message in its entirety, but what we see if you examine the messages throughout the scriptures, throughout the gospels, you'll see that they all kind of come back to this very thing, don't they? They come back to the contents of the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about that. Every message that Jesus gave throughout the Gospels has the the substance of the Sermon on the Mount in them. And so it was a very important sermon for us to to take. And I believe we took about, we were trying to figure this out yesterday, I think it was close to about a year and a half to get through the Sermon on the Mount. We wanted to just understand it, right? Be slow and deep and, and getting it. Now watch this. From that picture... We move to the healing. So he says in, in, in Matthew 4.23 that he went out teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease. Now we're going to get a picture of what that looked like. You get a very clear pattern of his through all of this. Actual miracles, the power is what we're talking about, if you will, here. Here's the pattern. First comes the sermon, then the signs, right? And I like that. First the sermon, then the signs. In other words, first you've got the clear, who is the Lord, who is God, this is what I came for, and the power that backs it up, doesn't it? The power that makes the statement, so therefore believe what I just said. Believe what I just said. 
Why this, why this pattern? What's the reason for such a power display after preaching such a sermon? Well, it lets us know who the Messiah is, right? And we're going to study chapters 8 through 12 as one unit. And what Jesus does in this one unit is display power that really only belongs to God. In a sense, what you have here in chapters 8 through 12 is the defense of his deity. You have a, a clear statement of his deity, if you will. And in fact, it is really amazing, by the time you get to the end, you have power that can only point to deity, and these miracles stand as his resume, if you will. They stand as his proof, his credentials, that he is the rightful Messiah. And by the time that you get to the end of chapter 12, you have all of these miracles, all of this power on display. And do you remember that's where, at the end of that chapter, the Jews reject Jesus Christ as, as the Messiah, and they even say, well, we can't deny the fact that there is power, so what we are going to say is this, you do what you do by the power of what? Beelzebub. We're going to say that this is Satan at work here. And once the Jews reject Jesus Christ as Messiah, he then goes another direction. And that's chapter 13. Chapter 13 is really... And, and on forward from that, Jesus' response to their ju- rejection. And what he does in doing that is then he starts to prepare the Gentile church, doesn't he? From that moment on. By the way, no coincidence, that he, by the time you get to chapter 16 and chapter 18, you, you see that the, the, the words church, the word church is mentioned for the first time twice there. Now, inside of this uh, new section here that we're going to look at, on this power of Christ, there are nine miracles that Jesus performs in chapters 8 and 9. Nine of them. And it's very, very fascinating how our Lord, uh, or how uh, the Lord through Matthew assembled this thing together here. You could say that our Lord sort of had this pulse about him. He would... uh, he would heal, and then he would step back for a response. And there would be a set of healings, and he would step back for a res- another response. And then another set of healings, and another stepping back for a response. And this happens three times in chapters 8 through 9. And so you have these three sets, kind of a triad, if you will, of miracles. Three miracles, and then a response And it goes in this pattern, as I said, three times. Now, one other thing, very important that you'll notice in these. Each response is a response of evangelism. And it's very fascinating. Uh, For for example, in chapter 8, 18 through 22, the issue is following Jesus. And so he goes and he says, follow me, right? And then you get to chapter 9, verses 19. 9 through 18, once again, it is about following Jesus. And we see in that section, Matthew is converted. And then finally in chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, that's that great section where Jesus looks upon the people as a shepherd, looking upon these poor sheep that, that are lost. And he says, pray for, we need to pray that the Lord, that, that there would be sent in here some gathering you know, to, of, of, of the, uh, the fields, people, these lost sheep that need a shepherd. His heart was full of compassion for them. Lost sheep who need a shepherd, and he feels for them. And so surrounding all this evangelism are these miracles. And we should pay attention because our our Lord never is random. He's never happenstance. He's never coincidental. He's always purposeful. Always lays things out with clarity and pattern and outline and purpose. And that's just what we see here again. With these miracles and evangelism, miracles, evangelism, miracles, evangelism. Now, here we have this need, I believe, to understand why. What do they have to do with evangelism? What do these miracles have to do with with, with evangelism. Now listen, miracles are God's way of pointing to, listen to this, 
the deity of Jesus Christ his son. The miracles were the way for the Lord to be able to communicate the doctrine of Christ that he is God. Pictures uh, of the kind of power we have here in these miracles that belongs to God alone. They make a clear connection to the same power that God has as creator. Would you notice throughout these miracles that they are very creating-like miracles? They deal with creation. With God as the creator. It is as though Matthew then is saying, you can believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah because of his unique power. He's given you the sermon, and you can believe those words because of his power. Now, this has always been how the apostles preach the gospel. I mean, it's, it's always been, believe in Jesus Christ, he's the Messiah, God proves it by great miracles, or he proved it by great miracles. It's always been that. Now, you remember this was John's approach. Remember this, we studied the Gospel of John way back when. He gives the theme in his Gospel in John chapter 20, verse 30. Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. Many other signs. What do you mean? Well, he's already given signs, and there are eight particular signs that were given throughout the Gospel of John that he kind of frames his whole, his whole Gospel around. These signs, these miracles... And it says that there were many others that he did which are not written in this book. In other words, Jesus did so many miracles, you couldn't put them all in the gospel that John wrote. So I'm just going to give you, John says, some samples of them so that I could give you the clear message. See, why write a a book on on the miracles of Jesus? Why tell us uh, about how powerful Jesus is? Verse 31. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have what? Life in his name. In other words, I did this so that you can understand who the Savior is, and then you can believe in him. See, I wanted you to know that the Savior is here, and that the Savior is powerful enough to do something about your sin. That's the point, right? So they wrote about his power because it made the clear statement that Jesus is God. And if Jesus is God, then he could really be what Matthew one twenty one said, a Savior of his people from their sins, right? See how it all ties together? It's really amazing. And you know, you get all sorts of pictures of this, by the way, in John's Gospel. Let me give you a few of these pictures from John's Gospel. You can just write these down. You don't necessarily need to look them up right now if you don't want. But, uh, for example, chapter 5, verse 19. You remember this? Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, of, the son of, can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Whatever? Whatever. Whatever he does. That's just an amazing statement that Jesus makes about himself. No man can see God and live. Jesus says, he doesn't even make a move unless he sees the Father doing it. In other words, all that he does is on the basis of something that you and I could never be or do. I see the Father constantly. You can't even see him and live. I see him and I do things. See. In other words, he's not... Though he looks like a human, he's not human in the way that we're human. In other words, something more than human is there. That's what he was trying to tell the people. Notice too the the word whatever, the whatever the Father does. Jesus says, my actions are limited only to whatever the Father can do. I do what he does. I mean, who can honestly make that kind of a statement, right? I do whatever. In other words, I'm unlimited in what I can do, but I'm limited from the standpoint that I limit it to only what he does. Well, let's see. What has the Father done? Created everything. Oh. Uh, massive miracles all throughout the Old Testament, right? That you see of power, the great power of God. Wow. Okay. 
opened the ground up when Dathan and those guys disobeyed and rebelled. Could, could the son do that? Well, he did say whatever. Right? And so when we see in that statement that he's making the statement that he's God. And you see this again in chapter 10 of John's Gospel, verse 25. I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. The works, the miracles. The miracles that I do in his name, they testify of me. They give a message. They preach about me. What, what, what works are these, these miracles? And, and then in verse 32, I showed you many good works, many miracles from the Father. Which of them are you going to show me for? Which, which ones really make the statement that, boy, this guy deserves death? And of course they say, well, no, no, we're not going to stone you for a miracle. We're going to stone you because you claim to be God. Well, at least he got that much. But tell me if I'm wrong, right? That's the point. That's the point. I did things from the Father's same power source. Which of those miracles merits your condemnation, your judgment? The, the one where I healed a leper? How about the one where the, the woman was at a fever and was about to die and I healed her? Which one of those merits condemnation? In other words, Jesus says, look at the miracles. What did, what did you learn from them? I mean, what was the conclusion of these miracles? And then Jesus puts it right in their face to deal with. In verse 37, he says, if I do not do the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, Though you do not believe me, why don't you at least believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. I mean, he's so clear, isn't he? Do you may understand there's a special relationship here. Do you may understand that this is deity? Jesus says everything rides on these works. Everything hinges on the miracles. Why? Because they point to his deity. And they make the statement that he's God, that's, and that's the proof that he is the Messiah, beloved. That's the power. That's what the power is connected to. Now let me show you this from the context as we get into our text. Turn back, if you're not there, to Matthew chapter 7. Look at chapter 7. We're going to go back just for a moment. Now, Jesus gave, just gave a, a strong sermon. Strong sermon. He just preached the message that said, unless you have a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees, then you're going to hell. If, if it's not greater than theirs, then you're going to hell. And we showed you that the scribes and Pharisees had a pretty good righteousness in terms of impressive. It was quite impressive. And then what he did is he exposed the unsaving righteousness, the righteousness that fails. And he raised the level of a God-accepting attitude and, and God-accepting morality and God-accepting religious activity and God-accepting praying and God-accepting giving and God-accepting relationships, right? And he really raised the standard of this so high that they would be left to say, to say to themselves, it just sounds like you're saying you have to be perfect. Yes. Yes, Jesus said. That's it. Matthew 5.48. That's it. As the Father is perfect. Yes. And then we ended with this. Verse 28. The multitudes were amazed at his teaching. I mean, man, this, this stuff this Jesus is teaching us is amazing. Right? It's shocking even. Verse 29. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Ah. Circle, underline, write out that word. Authority. Because there's a key word. Because let me tell you something. That one word is going to be expounded upon from chapters 8 through 12. That one word. That's the, that's the key. That's the deal right there. What was the issue to them? What floored them? Authority. See, the scribes quoted other, other people, didn't they? As their authorities. Jesus said, I am my own authority. And in fact, you want to know something? It's the Father who gave me this authority. And so I stand on his authority. I don't look to any other man to have authority, to make me have authority. And it's for that reason that you can believe me. You know what Jesus was doing? 
He was showing them that they were fakes, wasn't he? That's just unbelievable. And I got to say, I mean, that's part of the reason why we know this, this, this couldn't have been written by a man. This is written by God himself. I mean, look at your source for authority, Jesus says. It's false. You're a spiritual fraud, he says to these guys. Now, what might they say to that? Well, what so many people might say. I mean, he's just given this tremendously strong message in an in, in-your-face in type of preaching message, right? What's the Jew of the day going to say to that? He's, he's going to say this. Well, who gives you the right to what? Say these things. I mean, you're, here you are. To, I mean, obviously you have this authority, but who do you think you are? How could you say this? How could you say such a strong thing like this? So watch this. Our study in chapters 8 through 9 are all about giving an answer to that one question on authority. Who gives you the authority? Well, take a look at my works. Do they bear the weight? And if they do, then believe. Start with believing in those works and let it bring you to the end of believing in me. Do that and you'll be what? You'll have eternal life. You'll be saved. So the answer is a bunch of miracles. Three responses to those miracles and all of it says one thing, that he is God. God has come down. God speaks. So listen to him. John MacArthur puts it well when he says, it presents the answer to the question, by what authority does he say this? Chapters 8 through 9 then is the answer to this question of authority. So we're going to look at the first set of those miracles in the first uh, 15 verses, three of them. The leper. There's a miracle of the first paralytic. I say the first because there's another one coming up in chapter 9. They let through the roof. And then you have the fevered woman who happens to be Peter's mother-in-law. So we'll, we'll get to that. And these miracles show us some incredible attributes of Christ. Now let me give you a little threefold attributes of Christ to hang on here. Uh, we see, for example, that Jesus condescends to man. He condescends to man. Do you know what that word condescend means? It's a wonderful word that we probably ought to inject into our um, you know, theological vocabulary. It's a great word about our Lord. It means literally to stoop. To put aside your place or level of superiority. Does that sound like Philippians 2, right? In each of these miracles, we're going to see, we're going to look at, at the fact that Jesus, he condescends. He comes down. He comes down to them. It's really, really wonderful and amazing. First with the lever and then with a Gentile. He comes down to this, that centurion. He comes down to the, uh, Peter's you know, mother-in-law with this fever. And so you see him showing compassion on each of these people. You know how he does it? By touching them. Coming down to them like that. He touches them. Physical touch. You also see availability. You could say with this one, Jesus correlates with man. They have a need and he comes. They have a need and he comes. And, and you see that in each case of these three. You can even see another thing here. His sovereignty, Right? And you could say with this one, Jesus carries out his will. He carries out the Father's will apart from man. Notice in all of these, there's an emphasis on Jesus saying, I will or I am willing. And then there's a warmth. I guess this will be the fourth thing. Is it three tonight? Jesus cares. He cares about them. And he shows that care in a very unique way. Notice how each one, again, emphasizes Jesus' touch. He touched them. He touched physical touch in a way that related to where they were at. And so you see that as our Lord demonstrating his power in such a way where they see God. They see the Exodus 34 God who is compassionate and merciful and slow to anger. 
what we see also is that the power is used to point then to the person, to who he is and what he's like. He didn't show the power that the people might be amazed and impressed and give him a golf clap. Give him a standing ovation. It wasn't for that at all. He wanted them to see him and come to him. Now, let's not forget how this all fits in with what Matthew's been doing. He's, he's been showing us that Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah, right? We've learned that. And he's qualified, we see legally, his genealogy, chapter 1. He's qualified prophetically. We saw that in his birth, where there was all that prophecy that was given in chapters 1 and 2. He's qualified approvingly. Uh, that is, heaven approved of him. And we saw that in his baptism. This, this was God's approval, heaven's affirmation in chapter 3. He's qualified spiritually, and we saw that in his temptation. He, he overcame that temptation in chapter 4. He's qualified, you could say, theologically. His, remember his sermon in chapters 5 through 7? What's left now? Well, what I would say, he's qualified essentially. That is, in essence. In essence. How so? His miracles. Chapters 8 through 9. He is God. The essence of who he is, God. Alright. Let's dive into this here. Verse 1. Take a look at it. Now you can see this power there in these first four verses. Let's start in, uh, in verse 1. And when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Now what mountain is he talking about? He's talking about the Sermon on the Mount mountain. Why it's called Sermon on the Mount, right? It means uh, he's coming from the mount down. You go up, you've got to go back down, right? So he's, he's doing that. And you have this great big crowd following Jesus. Why? Well, they were amazed. We already saw that, right? And, you know, they've already, in chapter 4, we saw that they were already witnessing a bunch of healings. And so these guys are just, uh, they're impressed. And, and, it's, and it's as though they're giving him that standing out ovation, right? What's driving this? Here they are giving him the two thumbs up. So why are they, why are they following him? You don't want to know why they're following him? Because they're curious. They're curious. Listen, back then, honestly, this would not have looked a whole lot different than the Beatles craze and all that kind of stuff. With a little bit more of a religious overtone. Oh, this is something that's happening here that's just not happened. And this is just new thing and and we're all really interested in, about this and everything. And, and, hey, look, he heals people, so maybe if you got a little something, you know, he might, he, maybe he'll heal you or whatever it is that you've got. You know, the answer to all your aches and pains and stuff. Maybe he'll slow down the aging process and so forth, right? So they're following him. What are they doing here following him? Remember John 6? says that there they wanted to make Jesus king, Right? These people were just on the edge of their seats to get somebody up there that they could follow. So, such fickle people, right? Man, this guy looks like he's powerful. We've had so many guys in our past, in our Jewish past, that have kind of tried to lead some type of following. Maybe this guy's the real deal. Who knows? He could even be the Messiah. And you know, um, and you have this empire over them called Rome, right? And... And they wanted to be free from them badly. And so here comes this man with all these miracles and this authority, and now they're going to follow him. Was it love that was motivating them? No, it was lust. And it was a lust for what? Power. So this is really ironic to me. This is really interesting to me that they lusted after power. Power is just what Jesus gives, but it is not like they thought. And it wasn't in the way that they thought it would come. They wanted world power. They wanted freedom from all other nations and even victory over all other peoples. And he comes down the mountain. It doesn't waste one moment right into a bunch of miracles. Now, what we get from this first miracle is really an amazing picture of what this power was all about. Listen, 
It's a picture of the gospel, really. You're going to see this here. So let's see this unfold in three parts. And let's start with this first one. Number one, the brutal situation. The brutal situation, verse 2. So you have all these people, they're following Jesus, and it's a large crowd, and it's, at a, it's you, you can bet there's just this momentum in this pitch. And then it says this. Notice what it says. And behold. Now stop there. And behold. In the Greek, idu. That's the Greek word. That's a, that's a way Greek of saying, look at this. Stop everything. That's, what, that's kind of the way it, it comes across in the Greek. Stop everything. What's that? That's the, the idea of idu. Behold. What is this? Right? It's a way of saying something that's a little surprising. And then the next word here. And behold, here's the surprising thing. A leper. A leper. Well, what's so surprising about that? There are a bunch of lepers in Israel, right? A leper. So here's the situa- this interesting situation that, that I'll explain why it's so interesting in a moment. But before seeing how interesting it is, I want you to see how brutal it is. So let's focus our attention on this uh, disease called leprosy. Here comes a leper. What's a leper? If you're my son, you're thinking, you know, big animal, cat, spots on everything. We had to tell him, no, not leopard. Leper, right? Leper, okay? He hears things a certain way, so we have to, you gotta, you gotta help. Leper. Here comes this leper. And it was a very brutal disease. Very debilitating, tough thing, tough thing to have. Now what's a leper? It's something that a, you know, you say, is it something that a person could get today? Was it contagious? What's the Bible say then about leprosy? Some people think that, it, that it's what we call Hansen's disease today. And the Hansen's disease is a very uh, fascinating disease that way. And it does share quite a bit of similarities, but I do not believe it's what is called Hansen's disease. But it does have to do with the skin. It's a skin disease, but it goes beyond just being a skin disease. I'm going to show you here in a moment. Now, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things on leprosy in the Old Testament. And you have seen all kinds of examples. Remember, um, Miriam died that way. At one point, Aaron's hand, you know, was made leprous and and there's a whole lot of people. Remember Naaman, right? All kinds of examples of, a, of, of leprosy. Even kings of a, Judah, they were made leprous. Now, in the Old Testament, we can learn a lot about leprosy, but especially in the book of Leviticus. Now, many people, this is fascinating to me, many people think that um, the disease leprosy came to Israel by means of Egypt. In fact... Many that believe that it actually started, this disease, started this, this bacteria, if you will, right there in Egypt. And so when they went to Egypt, they brought back, traveling around for 40 years, this disease called leprosy, and it, be, and it, and it really took off in a catastrophic way in Israel when they came into the Promised Land. Now, Classic writers think that leprosy, as I said, started in, Israel, in Egypt, but you need to understand a little bit more about not just where it started from, but exactly what it was. Rather than tell you what I learned about it, I thought I would let William Hendrickson, quoting Dr. Heisinga from 1927. This is, this, is a, this is a description of leprosy from 1927 that I wanted to give to you here. So listen to this. He says this. The disease which we call today leprosy, generally begins with pain in certain areas of the body. Numbness follows. Soon the skin in such spots loses its original color. It gets to be thick, glossy, and scaly. In fact, the infection is called leprosy because it makes the skin scaly. The Greek word lepos or lepis meaning scale. As the sickness progresses, the thickened spots 
become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. The skin, especially around the eyes and ears, begins to bunch with deep furrows between the swellings so that the face of the afflicted individual begins to resemble that of a lion. Fingers drop off or are are absorbed. Toes are affected similarly. Eyebrows and eyelashes drop out. By this time, one can see that the person in this pitiable condition is a leper. By a touch of the finger, one can also feel it. One can even smell it. For the leper emits a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, in view of the fact that the disease-producing agent uh, frequently also attacks the, the larynx, the leper's voice acquires a, a grating quality. His throat becomes hoarse, and you can now not only feel, see, and smell a leper, but you can hear his rasping voice. And if you stay with him for some time, you even imagine a peculiar taste in your mouth, probably due to the odor. All the senses of the well person are engaged in the detection of the leper. Isaiah says in his book, Unclean, Unclean. Wow. I mean, that gives you a little bit of a sensory on the whole deal. Not many people are able to get leprosy today. It doesn't, um, it doesn't spread like it, like it did back then. In fact, I was reading that the disease is really only communicable by around 10% of all the people in the world. So 90% of people not only won't, not only uh, is it unlikely, but they won't get it. They can't get it. It's able to be controlled today, even by some medicine. And there's a, a drug that is used to c- control it a bit. But back then, and especially during the formation of Israel as a nation, it was a huge problem. In fact, you could say that this one disease was almost a thorn in Israel's existence. It was the one thing that followed them in its entire existence. There were other diseases that came and went. This one did not. And it is almost as though, and I believe it is actually, a divine thing placed to accomplish a particular divine purpose. I believe our Lord allowed it for one particular reason. It becomes a picture of something even more brutal than the disease itself. Now, because it was so devastating and defiling, the Lord gave some instructions on how to spot it and uh, what to do with it. And he he gave these in Leviticus 13. Have you ever read Leviticus 13 and 14? It deals with this leprosy. And I'm not going to go through the chapter and give you all the details of it. You can read it yourself. But let me just give you the summary. Now, if a person thought he might have leprosy, immediately he would go to a priest, right? Say, hey, uh, I think I might have it. I need you to check me out. And so Leviticus 13 says that's what you do. You go to the priest, have him check it, check you out. And if it was an infection that didn't quite look like leprosy, the guy had to wait a week. Okay? So let's see if this thing manifests into leprosy. We're not sure yet. Wait a week, come back and check on us. You know, do these things while you're waiting. Out, be outside the camp and all that kind of stuff. And he, when he came back, if there was no change, the priest would say, why don't we wait another seven days just to make sure because it hasn't changed yet, but it still hasn't gotten better yet. And uh, they were, of course, waiting to see if it would manifest leprosy. And this happened week after week, and it, and it could take a, it could be quite a long process to even figure out, does the guy even have leprosy in the first place? But if it was something that spread like a rash and flaking skin, and why it was leprosy, and the guy was considered un clean. If the skid started to get better, then the priest would pronounce him clean, and then the guy would go through a bunch of stuff to make him clean to Israel. He would have to wash his clothes a certain way. He would have to wash his body a certain way. He would have to make offerings for his unclean state to get himself back into right order with the Lord and with the people. But watch this. If the guy was found with leprosy, verse 45, Leviticus 13.45, as for the leper who has the infection, his clothes 
shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall cover his mustache, and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So you get the picture here. You had this guy really separate from everyone else. He had to be separated from his family. He had to be separated from people. He had to be separated from fellowship. One commentator I read called this the living death. The living death. Edersheim went on to say, how, here's how bad it was. The Pharisees, the Pharisees would uh, throw stones at lepers to keep them far away from them. In other words, you're not far enough, get back. And they had to even rule in terms of uh, how close you could get in terms of the air quality. And if the wind was blowing, I think it had to be like 150 feet. And so they were trying to let them know, get away, get away. Here you have a people defiled, denounced, detached, devastated, distant. What we understand of the disease is that there is this numbness that takes away sensitivities so that you literally rub your body off. And it's not so much, actually pain is not really involved so much in it, but if you don't have any sensory, you put your hand on a stove and that thing is going to burn off. And if you don't realize it's burning off, well, there goes your finger, right? Or there goes your hand. So it's a very ugly, terrible, loathsome way to die. And what's worse is that you really, in not feeling this pain, you really are giving yourself to, you're given to a slow death, a, a dramatic, slow death. You could even see a, say a shameful death. You know why? You know why it was so shameful? Because they were considered ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. In other words, to them, even in God's eyes, they were the outcasts. There just was nothing pleasant about the life of a person who was a leper. I'm sure they probably thought about, had to have thoughts, suicidal thoughts. No offering or sacrifice could change that situation. And I believe what this gives us is just a living illustration of sin. And that's the picture. And, and that's this brutal situation. And sin is brutal, beloved. Now, hold on to that thought here. Because we're going to tie the physical and, the, and really the a meaning that's here that you see. So with that, take a look at the next thing. Number two, the, the leper's submission. So we go from the brutal situation to the leper's submission. And what we see here with this leper is something amazing. And it's another picture that we need to take in. We, we see a man coming to Jesus Christ for much more than physical healing here. And again, a picture of the gospel. And from this brutality, we see something really unbelievable. Now the best word I believe describes what we see in verse 2. The best word I believe what we describe, that describes this is the word submission. You could say that's really what's going on here. So... And this, by the way, is what, I, what is needed to be saved, isn't it? Isaiah 66, 2. Uh, to this one I will look, right? To him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and he trembles at my word. This is the person whom I will, by grace, save. This one who is humble and contrite of spirit. Here's what submission looks like, right? Now, four words that describe this submission here. This is how we're going to understand verse 2. Take a look at verse 2. First word, trust. Trust. Verse 2. A leper came to him, it says. A leper came to Jesus. He, what's the big deal with that? Well, think about what we just learned from Leviticus 4, uh, chapter 13. 
No leper was supposed to do that. They were supposed to be where? Away from people, outside the camp, get away, shouting unclean, unclean. They were doing that to say, hey, look, don't come near me. This is so bad and devastating. You don't want to get this. He comes to Jesus, right to him. This would be absolutely, utterly shocking. What are you doing? You could just hear the gasps in the air of the people that, go, that were saying, what, what, what is this? What is this? And so he comes. He's not supposed to be near anyone. And, you know, you got to think that this guy probably cleared the room pretty good, you know. They probably made it a pretty good opening for him to come right to Jesus. See, so why did he go straight to Jesus? Why did the unclean seek the clean? Maybe he was understanding Romans 4, 5 to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. See, Maybe he understood that the place for ungodly people is to go to Jesus. The unclean go to Jesus. Now what we see here in this trust is we see this confidence. Uh, we, he, he placed himself in Jesus' power and he wasn't hesitant to do that. He didn't cry out from a far way, hey Jesus, Jesus, can I please come see you? Nothing like that. Boom, right to Jesus. No hesitation. There's a man who can deal with me at the deepest level. I know he can. I'm unclean. I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm unclean. I should... I'm supposed to be away from everyone. I'm supposed to be shamefully going away from a man like Jesus, not to him. And so submission starts with trust. There's a certain kind of confidence that submission has. It throws itself onto the mercy of the other. It, it, it goes because there's no other place to go. It's convinced I've, there's no, no way... Uh, nowhere for me to go. There's no way to live except this. This is my only hope for life. I mean, when you're already dead and you sense life, you go, don't you? Right? Let me give you a second word that describes a leper's submission. And it is the word affection. Affection. You could call this reverence or worship or devotion, but I like affection based on what the word is here. Look at it, verse 2. And he bowed, him, he bowed to him, bowed himself to him. Very fascinating. The word here is uh, proskuneo, is the Greek term. It means to kiss towards someone of importance. Literally to bend the knee in affection. It, it was a word used of a people that would... You know, the king would come, and you ever see this, these pictures here of people that come up to the king and they genuflect, they bow the knee, and they kiss the ring, right? They kiss the, the hand. That's this picture. That's what this is. It's just a really an amazing picture here. It, it, this word was used to describe uh, worship throughout the New Testament. And that's the proper response to a king, right? I mean, reverence, devotion, worship, your due loyalty. I mean, here's a, here's a man who is dying and unclean and really shouldn't be here according to the custom and law. And this is this great picture. And it's really a fascinating picture because we just got, he just got done in Matthew 5 through 7 talking about the scribes and Pharisees. And these were people that wore robes and looked so beautiful and good and, and just everything was all in right order. And here, come this, here comes this guy that's in a shambles not only looks terrible, but smells terrible. The scribes and Pharisees wouldn't have anything to do with Jesus. This guy goes right to his front doorstep. This leper. Here is this man who instead of looking great on the outside is detestable. But on the inside, you know what he's doing? He's worshiping. He's worshiping. This is why he bows the knee this way. Listen, beloved, our Lord isn't after hygiene. He's after the soul. He's after the heart. He's after the worship. A sweet-smelling aroma. You know what? His outside might have smelled horrible and rancid, but the inside was after the Lord, and that was a sweet-smelling aroma. 
And look at it again. Look what he says. Lord. He calls him Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord to this man. And this isn't just a title of respect. I believe he is called Jesus. He's calling Jesus here Lord as a title for God. He's falling on his face before the Lord of Lords. There's just no place to go. This is it. He sees that there is something entirely greater than the body here. My soul needs you, Jesus. And that's how submission works. My soul needs this. Thirdly, third word for submission. How about the word humility? Humility. Now this is just obvious, but look at the leper's humility. Verse 2 again. Lord, if you're willing. I just love this. You know what he's saying? Look, this might not be your will, O oh Lord, but I submit myself to your will and, your, and only your will. Isn't that good? If you're willing. He doesn't say because you're willing, because I know, I know you will. No, that's overconfidence, right? That's presumption. He comes saying, Oh, Lord, if you will. If you will, if this is a part of your will, you made me, you purposed for me to have leprosy. This guy gets it. He understands. I submit myself to your will and, and only your will. This is a man who was praying just like what we learn in Matthew. Your will be done, what? On earth as it is in heaven. This leper isn't coming to sell himself. He's not coming to campaign and show that he's worthy of some healing. He gets it. Lord, it's all about what you want. You made me. You purpose for me to have leprosy. If it fits with your will, then heal me. But only if it is your will. What a far cry from the supposed healers of today. These people, these shucksters and hucksters who are trying to tell us that God never wills for any to have any disease or anything wrong with them. That's not this guy's theology. He says, you know, it could be your will that I die having leprosy. And that doesn't make you bad. It means that you have a good purpose for me to have this leprosy. The man says, Lord, it might be. I mean, if it's your will for me to keep this stigma, then I'm prepared for that. That's submission. It's what it looks like. And a fourth word, faith. Verse 2, he says to Jesus, you can make me clean. Now the key word in that phrase is the word can. Deutomai, ability. You have the ability. He says to Jesus, I know that you have power. I know that you are great. Notice, what's the power for? Cleansing. I have faith that you are powerful over all disease. You know what the slepper's doing? He's admitting that God is sovereign, isn't he? I like what one man said. True faith is one that says to God, I know you can, I just don't know if, it's you, if you will. I know you can, I don't know if you will. It's good. So how's Jesus going to respond to this kind of submission? Let's look at point number three. The Savior's salvation. He's going to save him, okay? <laughs> He's going to save this man. Rescue him. Heal him. And again, by the way, notice the last word in that verse, clean. Notice that this man didn't want to just be healed. What did he want? To be clean again. You know why that's important? Why I say it that way? He doesn't just want to have his skin back together. He wants to be put right in the fellowship, right? I want to be with my family again, Lord. I want to go to the temple. I want to see the priest. I want to have that kind of joy, see? In other words, I want to be saved. I want to be a part of the normal stream of following you. Notice the threefold response of the Savior to this man. First of all, Jesus is compassionate. Compassionate. Verse 3. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I'm willing be cleansed. Isn't this so good? Isn't it so good that our Lord doesn't say what the Catholic Church says? All right, ten Hail Marys and uh, four Our Fathers. 
Do some good things here or there. It almost sounds like Santa Claus, right? I mean, you better watch out. You better not. He's watching you, right? He didn't say that. He just says, hey, I'm willing. I'm willing. Why? For his own purpose. He says, you recognize me as sovereign? I am. And I want to exercise my sovereignty in this way. Now you have to understand, no one was willing to touch a leper, right? It says that he reached out his hand and he touched him. You don't do that, right? Leviticus 5.3 is the reason why it wasn't permitted. So how could Jesus do this and still remain clean himself? You know how? Because he's God. He's God. Matthew 11.5, Jesus understood that one of the signs that the Messiah has come was the healing of a leper to manifest that he is God. God is here. That's why he touched this leper. It's okay. And of course, what I love about our Lord here is the compassion. You know, you haven't been touched for years, Mr. Leper. Nobody would even get close to you. Not only am I going to get close to you, I touch you. We don't know what the touch was like, whether it was an arm around him or a hug or holding his hand. But here he is. Let your first touch be from the God who made all things, right? And then second, Jesus heals completely. Not only do we see Jesus as compassionate, but as complete. The Savior's salvation is complete. When he heals, he does a complete job. And so verse 3, and immediately his leprosy was cleaned, was cleansed. What a far cry from the supposed healers of today, which, you know, well, maybe in five days you'll start feeling better, or it's just starting now, and you'll see things are on the up right now. Well, that's not Jesus then. You don't have any connection to Jesus then. You're nothing like him. Because he healed immediately. Instantly. That's how he did it. This is real power from God. No time involved. He touches. He declares the man clean. The leprosy is gone. Just imagine all that long degeneration that he had reversed in an instant. What took decades to erode was instantly made new. And isn't that the way it is at salvation with us? Then third, the Savior's salvation was clear. Verse 4, And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded for a testimony to them. And Jesus has a purpose for healing this man, for making him a picture of salvation. And it's the same for us here. Obedience and testifying. Obedience and testifying. Or you could say evangelism. Why does Jesus tell him to do this? Doesn't this seem like a strange thing to do? You know? Why, why does he say, tell no one? What's the, why is he silencing this man? You would think that he would say, now get out there and tell everybody who healed you, right? He says the opposite. You know why? Because obedience actually comes before the testifying. Obedience is the backdrop to the testifying. And I'll give you some, another thought here. I read a lot of views on this one from commentators, and there's not enough time to give you them all, but here's my take. I believe the Lord didn't want the priests and all of the scribes and Pharisees to hear about this man being healed. Not hearing about it. He wanted them to hear it and see it from this man. Now there's a lot of reasons why. Leprosy was a very big thing and their whole system of righteousness was based on proclaiming their own cleanness and declaring others unclean. I'm pretty sure that they'd never seen a person who was a true leper come back healed. I'm pretty sure of that. And by the way, Luke's Gospel says this man was, he was a physician, right? So he had the doctor's way of saying it. He was full of leprosy. And what that tells us is that he wasn't kind of a leper. He didn't have a touch of leprosy. He was... Full-blown, full as bad as you get, leper. 
he was a leper in the worst way. And so what the Lord does is force these guys to see that Jesus really is what he claims to be. God come down in human flesh. And that's why Jesus silences this man. Go over there and let them see this. And let them see that I really am a Matthew 5 man when I said that I came to uphold the law, that is to fulfill it, not abolish it. I really meant what I said. And I'm telling you to do this according to the law. This is how you would do it according to Leviticus 14, right? And so here, he's telling the leper, obey the word, obey the word. And then the deeper reason why Jesus wanted him to go to the priest, notice, as a testimony to them. Look, I want you to obey the word, and then I want you to preach the gospel to these guys. Tell them. Tell them. Tell them about me. Tell the priests. Get yourself in the inner circle. Get yourself right there close to them and say, oh, by the way, Jesus did this to me. Jesus did this to me. Notice as a testimony to them, the whole priesthood, who's, who's ever there, tell, tell, tell them. They'll examine him and they'll have to conclude that Jesus cleans people, right? That he heals, that he cleanses. Now, what's Jesus really after here? You know what he really, was really after in all of this? The guy's heart. This is why he tells him, do it this way, I want you to obey me. The soul, he's after his soul. Now, as we come to an end, here and conclude, I told you that this was a picture of the gospel, of how salvation works. This is conversion. It's how conversion works, beloved. And you see this here. First of all, you see the brutal truth about yourself. And that is, you're sick. That is, that sin has made you a loathsome thing before a holy God. You're unclean. You're separate. It's really bad, just like leprosy. What can you do? Submit to Christ, right? Just like this guy. How? By trusting Him. Come with full confidence that He is everything He claims to be. Come to Him and worship with an affection. Set your heart to love Him. Love for Christ. Come humbly. Lord, if you're willing, you can save me. And then come by faith. God can save you through Christ. Right? It's a picture of Christ's power to save. That's what we have here. And will you notice how He saves? He saves us to obey Him and to testify about Him, doesn't He? It's all here. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's interesting. The last thing I want to share with you, it's very interesting. In Mark's Gospel, it tells us that this man went out and immediately started telling people about Jesus. He didn't obey. He did not obey. You know, he got so excited, he didn't obey Jesus. He went out and told everyone and didn't get to Jerusalem. You know, I think he missed out on a major blessing. I really do. And this happens. You know what he missed out on? The blessings that come from obedience and testifying. In obedience, it sets up the testifying. Listen, so much of our evangelism is done, excuse me, is undone by our disobedience to the Lord. Oh, that we would obey Him. And out of that life of obedience, the unbeliever would see there's power here. I need to think about what he's saying because the words he's saying and the life he's living match and therefore I must consider what is being said. And of course, the elect will what? They'll hear it and believe it. And that's exciting. We have that opportunity. Let's go preach the gospel. Let's go trust the Lord to use us this way and know that He didn't manifest His power this way to get a standing ovation. He did it with a clear purpose to show that our God saves, right?
He saves people that are in sin this way. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful, thankful for this healing. And there's so much here, Lord. I, I, I feel like I just gave the, the uh, short version. <laughs> But you know, and I pray to your Father that uh, you would, uh, well, Lord, I mean, Jesus isn't on this earth physically, but I still pray for that same touch. The people would know that you are compassionate. People would know that about your grace. Help us to have eyes to see ears to hear. Help us to be those people that obey, that testify. We just are so grateful, Lord, for this kind of power. Use this way, Lord. And uh, this man must have gone away just so full of joy. And I pray to your Father that, um, that we would have eyes to see, Lord. And that the overflow of that sight would be a love for you in this type of bowing down worship that we saw this leper do. You can heal us at the deepest level. And we thank you for that. And we look to you and we say, Amen, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.